Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, friends, uh, thanks for, for coming back again today. For those of you who are, who are with us via live stream, thanks for joining us again today. Um, preaching my way through the book of Malachi, which seemed like this great idea until I actually started doing it because it's hard. The book of Malachi is what happens when God decides to keep the promise of friendship, the kind of friendship that says, I'll say the hard truths to you even if you don't want to hear them, and I will hang around despite all of your arguments and complaints and justifications until the day that you finally accept the truth that I'm speaking to you lovingly, and at that point, with your thank you, we will walk forward together in peace and in continued love. Every one of us says that we want friends like that, right? Nod your heads like this. We want a friend who will tell us the truth. Well, we have one in our Lord God. And he had promised himself to a, to a people exclusively in that time frame that's covered by the Old Testament of the Bible. There was an exclusive group, the people of God, the nation of Israel. But God made it clear all along that he didn't intend for that group of people who are included among the family of God to remain exclusive. It was his hope that he would that he and Israel would so get that friendship, that family kinship, that covenant bond so so right that, that they would respond to God in holy love and he would respond to them in holy love and their holy love would look like trust and obedience and God's holy love would look like the blessings of prosperity and very clear signs that he was among them. And in so doing, it would put on display this incredibly different way of doing life than just sinking further into the human brokenness of sin. And all of Israel's neighbors would say, well, I want a piece of that action. I want that kind of life. I want that kind of God. I want that kind of faith. And, and they would become the magnet of the whole earth that would draw everybody to the God. And it worked exactly like that. Oh, wait, no, it didn't work at all like that. That's the story of the Old Testament is how it just almost never worked like that. Just these short periods of time. And, and then Israel would, would, would rebel against God or ignore God or some combination of those things. And, and that, that ignoring and that, uh, di- that disobedience rebellion often looked like uh, we're kind of bored with this God or disappointed in him. Let's find another one. And we'll, uh, we'll kind of sneak him or her into our relationship, and maybe, maybe God, the real God, won't notice, but we'll get this other little God over here to help us with this area of our life, and, and in so doing, that just kind of swept throughout the people, and, and God became either their second favorite God or they forgot about him. And after episode, after episode, after episode, these, these great cycles of history of centuries at a time of the people not just accidentally being unfaithful to God, but proving that they were going to continue to be unfaithful to God, God comes through the prophets and says, I have messages for you that I'm going to speak in really harsh terms in the hope that I gain your attention and regain your affection and faithfulness. And the last of those prophets of that era, we find this, uh, wrote this book, Malachi. We don't know anything about the guy, but, but we find out some things about his God real quick, like as we read, here is a God who, feel this, the limitless God who's been pushed to his limits and says, here's some truth. 
And we've been wrestling with it for weeks and weeks. And last week, we came to this thing that, that lies especially close to the hearts of all of humanity and uh, that addresses the American public and especially the American Christian public in a way that really touches on the deepest pain of our lives. He said, I hate divorce. I, I promise you, there's an implied footnote there that says, but not divorced people. I hate divorce because of what it does to individuals and what it does to families and, and what it does to whole cultures and what it, what it does to the people of God so that they don't even look like the people of God anymore and there's no longer any attracting power to the, to the masses around us who are, who are dying in their godless existence. And so last week, we took a look at that hard word. I think historically over, over uh, you know, some period of time anyway, the evangelical church, especially back when I was a little kid, we looked down our noses at people who suffered divorce. And I'm always going to call it suffered divorce because at one level, I don't care who filed and who was filed against and I don't care about the circumstances that, that, that really uh, create the story. When it's all said and done, a person, husband or wife or child who has been through a divorce has suffered divorce. Horrible pain, unimaginable at the beginning of someone's marital journey, suffered divorce. To those who have suffered divorce, the people of God proclaim about our God. He hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. You believe that. Say, say amen with me. Good. Yes, it's worth celebrating. Even if you're from the LC Valley and you're not sure, you should clap when you're happy about things. Okay? Yeah, that was a really nice try for you guys. Second two tries, yeah. But as the church has uh, at times, uh, not, not, and for periods of time, not handled well the, the, the people who have suffered divorce, and we've pushed them to the periphery and said, you can't be pastors and you can't be leaders in the church and you can't be a good example of anything, the church has repented of that. We must also go back to this passage, and as we read about marriage among the people of God, we find that not only had divorce dishonored God, but the way that, that the people of God had done marriage had dishonored him. Huh. How about we look at that one today? All of, you, all of us folks who have managed to stay married, thank God we're not among those who've been divorced. How about we take a look at what the scriptures say to those of us who have stayed married and see what maybe God's hope had been for us all along. We're reading from Malachi chapter 2. We're going to start reading with verse 10. I'd ask you, if you would, please, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Would you turn on the lights for us, Lord? Would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to let out that half-breath that we've been holding, worried about the pain of the punch? Would you help us to trust you enough that we'll listen? And let your spirit speak to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Are we not all children of the same Father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has been unfaithful. 
and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Don't be unfaithful to your wife. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I can't tell you how many times I've read Malachi before I realized God said anything about marriage. I kept reading the divorce part. Uh, that comes from, of course, my, my childhood. I've mentioned to you a number of times that my family uh, went through divorce when I was a kid, and so divorce is this big sore spot in my life, and when you say the word, you've got my attention, and you probably have uh, my attention for a brief second before I start heading right back into my childhood and licking some of those wounds in, in my life. And I, So I can't tell you how many times I read this passage uh, before I came to realize that it speaks to us about marriage and by the time I'd wrestled with this passage a little bit, I, I came to this conclusion that it didn't feel very good, that this holy, incredible God who gives himself in covenant faithfulness to people um, designed a marriage to teach us as this living lesson, this living metaphor, what relationships supposed to look like between God and his people. He makes a little tiny microcosm of it, puts a man and a woman together and says, learn how to love one another, learn how to make promises to one another, learn how to keep those promises to one another, learn how to lean on one another, learn how to, to edify and beautify and honor one another, and, and your marriage will become this little glowing light that, that kind of brightens the corner of the culture where you live, and, and your circle of friends will begin to, to be inspired to hope that their love might be beautiful too. And that as the people of God do that faithfully, couple after couple after couple, we end up lighting up all of the dark places with beacons of hope that people can be loved and loved for good by both people and by God. It's a brilliant plan. Get virtually everybody, this is God's plan, get virtually everybody on the planet married Give them the tools for being married in healthy ways, and that healthy marriage becomes a holy and visible example of the love of God, and we will flood the whole world with light that way. It's beautiful. It's just that in the way that human beings live it out, it uh, hasn't seemed to work out that way very often. And so we, I, I chewed on that for a while and came to the conclusion that divorce dishonors God and so does marriage. <laughs> Apparently, we need a little bit of help with this. I'm going to share some things with you today that, that make me sound, uh, they will make me sound like an old man. And the truth is, I'm getting there. 
uh, I'm 48. I hope I'm middle-aged. I hope I'm middle-aged. I hope I get to be 96 one day. The, uh, the numbers um, I wouldn't seem to indicate that my chance is uh, better than 50% there. But I hope that I'm middle-aged, and I hope that I get to be old one day. But I'm going to sound like an old man today when I take a tone that some pastors and evangelists from my past took when they said, it is time for the church of Jesus Christ to return to... And this is the part where you think I'm going to say, time to return to the, to, the, to the way the church used to be in like 1965 or 70. No. No. Uh, the, whatever it is that we see in the culture in, with the brokenness of divorce and the brokenness of marriage, it's been existent since at least 1965, okay? And the church of Jesus Christ uh, in America was, was, was being... Um, torn and unraveled at the roots when it comes to this very issue, losing our ability to demonstrate the love of God to the world through marriage at least as long as I've been alive. And so I want to say to you today, it is time for the church of Jesus Christ to return, but, but to return to something that's older than any of us in this room. And that is to, to, look, to, to return past even the earliest American versions of marriage and even to the to the place earlier than the European and other Western civilization views of marriage, all the way to the way that marriage ends up being defined in this book for us. This book gives us lots of examples of unhealthy and therefore unholy marriage, but a handful of texts paint for us a picture of something that is possible because of that Holy Spirit we celebrated earlier who will come and help us to accomplish that which God desired for us, healthy and therefore holy marriage. And I'm going to tell it to you this way today. First and foremost, it is time for the, for the people of God to return to faithfulness to the commands of God regarding marriage. This passage that we read today is, uh, is faithful to teach to us a principle of marriage that I hear rarely mentioned in, in Christian churches anymore. I'm going to say it today. I believe it. If you don't and want to argue, come find me, but you're going to lose the argument in the end, okay? Because I'm, I'm one million percent convinced that the scriptures teach what I'm about to share with you. You, you read it. It was in uh, verses 11 following. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. From the, from the beginning of the establishment of this exclusive group in the Old Testament, the people of God, among the things that he said to his people, that God said to his people was, you are forbidden from marrying people who do not share your faith. Uh, he says it in Malachi. Now, remember, anything that shows up in Malachi, he's addressing because it was stated far earlier when God and Israel were first putting this relationship together, and they've been unfaithful to it. There's no new commands in Malachi. It's just the stuff that they agreed to centuries before, but have since said, really, God... Um, We've, we've advanced past that. We're no longer primitive like that. We have, we have new and enhanced understandings, so we know better how to do life now. And we're going we're gonna to reshape and reform our culture that you know, gives a, a wink and a nod to the traditions of the past, but really that no longer applies to us. 
It is time for the people of God to return to faithfulness to this teaching. It is time for us to teach our children and our teens and our young adults a principle that will benefit them and their homes richly, and it gives them a chance to form the kind of marriage that I was talking about earlier that becomes a lighthouse of hope to the people around them. It has been the will of God for his Old Testament people. We find it again in the New Testament when Paul talks to us about uh, the, the followers of Jesus not becoming unequally yoked with, with folks who do not share our faith. Paul goes on. He hits with a, with a 12-pound sledgehammer when he hits. And he says, because, I mean, really, do is it not logically evident that light and darkness don't really have anything to do with one another? And I realized that as, as we begin to talk about this, this exclusive marriage principle that the people of God are only to take in marriage, bind themselves in marriage to people who share their faith, I realized as soon as we talk about it, it starts sounding elitist. It starts sounding judgmental. But if you read it enough times, and you, if you say it to yourself enough times, and you read this enough times, it, it, it will begin to lose those tones that the broader culture projects upon things like commands. And you will begin to see that it really resonates with the heart of God. Was he saying all those people out there um, were better than them? No. Was he saying, we've got all our stuff figured out and none of them do? No. Was he saying, you've got to be careful because they don't share our faith? And when we welcome them into the most sacred circle of relationship, they may drag us away from that relationship? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Now listen, I know people who are sitting here this morning who are friends of yours and mine, who are the exception to the rule. The, the scriptures teach both Old and New Testament this idea of the followers of God, the followers of Jesus, limiting themselves to uh, binding romantic relationships only with other people who share our faith. I know folks who did that the other way, and it's worked out beautifully, and I'm glad that they're a part of our church family. There's more than one couple here who that's their story. I'm also going to tell you um, that exceptions to the rule don't negate the rule, okay? Have you noticed how um, helium balloons float? Yeah, it doesn't change the law of gravity, y'all. You step out a second-story window, you are not a helium balloon. You're not going up. You're going to go down at 9.8 meters per second squared. How was that, Jay? Yeah. And you fall more than two stories, you will reach what is called terminal velocity before it's mathematically true, right? Yeah. So we, we all know there are exceptions to the rule. Some, some godly man or some godly woman who, uh, who, who started a romantic relationship with someone who didn't share the faith and, and the light from that person's life so infused the heart of the other person that they too came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and those two ended up together in, in marriage and have built holy and beautiful families. We give thanks for, for those miraculous things when they happen. But they don't change the express um, intent of God as expressed in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy and again 
in Malachi and again in the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. I mean, it's woven all throughout there. That God has this principle. He, he offers it, he, he presents it first as a command because before you understand all the implications of it, he comes with the authority of his throne and says, do it. Much like you, when the kids are this big and they can't understand how running into the street is dangerous, you just say, don't run into the street. You don't take the time to explain. You just give them the command and, and you assign maybe some, some kind of consequences to that because you know better and you love the kids and you understand the long-term consequences and so you give a command like that. You don't run into the street. He gave, he gave this first to us as a command in that section of the Bible that's called the law, the, those first five books. But as we work our way on throughout Scripture, he paints the picture of what happens as family after family after family decides, well, we really know better than God, and, and we're the exception to the rule, and the exception will work out fine. As family after family in the Old Testament welcome people into their clan who do not share their faith and then bind themselves together in, in covenant marriage, and we find all the wreckage that takes place in the faith of the first person and in the lives of the children and the grandchildren, and you read story after story of human wreckage that came from disobedience. I'm not going to preach about this alone today, but I'm your pastor. Among the things that you called me to do, that you asked me to do, was to show you the contents of the Scripture and to teach how they apply, those ancient ideas, apply in today's world. You, I, I highlighted some families in our congregation who have done this the other way and it's worked out great. And as, as I was telling those stories, you were recounting in your minds the number of people who used to worship with us but who allowed themselves to get into binding love relationships with people who didn't share the faith, and as a result, their spot in this sanctuary is empty today. Some of you are crying the tears internally of the story of your own children. You didn't teach them this. You may not have even been aware of it. You, you, you rolled the dice and you let your kids do that too, and as a result, your children are far from the Lord today. And you worry about your grandkids. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ not to shake a big bony finger in the face of people who have sinned, departed from, from God's intent, but to say to all of us from here forward, heed the word of the Lord and the wisdom of the word of the Lord. Uh, getting married to a fellow Christian isn't going to guarantee you a good marriage. It isn't. But marrying someone... Who, is, who has another faith or does not share our faith will immediately put you in a position that compromises your own spirituality because you will have bound yourself into two covenants. Remember, covenant is that kind of relationship that says, I'll stay faithful to this even if it kills me to do so till death do us part. In binding ourselves into covenant with God and binding ourselves into covenant with a person who does not share that covenant with God, we many times find the taffy pole you know what happens if you stretch taffy far enough? And eventually, it just sags in the middle and then breaks and all the good taffy falls on the floor. That's what happens. As we read the Christian scriptures, it seems that, 
when, when God is trying to do a restorative work in the heart of each individual, a heart that's been broken by sin, polluted by sin, and, and, and the decisions following have brought great, great baggage and scarring into our lives, it seems that what he's trying to do is take broken pieces and put them back together. The work of God is collecting and unifying. In almost every, almost every redemptive effort of his, every effort of his is a redemptive effort, and almost every redemptive effort is God taking broken pieces and putting them back together. It does not behoove the people of God to say, well, then let me do things that, that, that are likely to, to destroy unity, to tear them apart. Christians, teach your children from the time they're this big. God has a plan for you to experience unity with him spiritually and unity with another person spiritually. And you cannot experience that spiritual unity unless spiritually you are on the same page. Last Wednesday, Laura and I, well, I started teaching a marriage class because Laura skipped laryngitis on the night that we had to talk about physical intimacy. Hmm. Still suspect, dear. Still, are you better today? Oh yeah, better. Yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> um, Laura was horribly sick this week. You did not want her coming in there and uh, breathing on you. But in uh, in the fellowship hall uh, last Wednesday evening, and for the next uh, few, we're gonna we're working on a, a marriage class to help us reacquaint us with the principles of marriage that really do bring unity and uh, spiritual unity psychological unity where you can, you can think and feel and decide alike, and uh, the, the physical unity as well that, that was the substance of last week's lesson. You can find all that stuff you know, through the live stream if you care to. But suffice it to say that the will of God includes spiritual union between husband and wife, and in order to do that, um, we have to have two people who are spiritually alive who've been given the Spirit of God. Okay? Otherwise, you're trying to put something together that the scriptures teach us God isn't going to bless uh, initially anyway, and that isn't likely to work for you. A principle, um, a principle of holy permanence that we begin by faithful obedience to God. So let me say this to the, to the folks who are either dating again or who are um, on the first half of, of, of the search for, for a mate. Um, I know it may seem to you like you're desperate, and you are not. You're created in the image of God, and you're wonderful. And there is somebody who is going to love you. And you, do, you are not likely to find the, the blessing of God by taking the path of disobedience. Obedience to God. You can trust him. The path of obedience to God is most likely to lead to the place of reward and fulfillment for you. So I just want to encourage you be patient and know that until there's somebody who loves you like that, you have a church family who loves you with the love of God and wants to support you in your commitment to obedience to God and to his ways. And for the, the times that our example has fallen well short of that, we also offer um, a, a prayer of, of repentance to God and an apology to you to say, why don't you walk with us in our imperfection, what we have learned from our disobedience and sometimes obedience, and we're going to walk it forward together. Until you have that one, you have us, right? The people of God who will love and include you. In the time that I've left today, and it's really just a few minutes, I want to share with you four things that I think will help to build a holy permanence 
into your marriage. Holy permanence. And uh, the first is this. We have to keep reminding ourselves that in the eyes of God, marriage is spiritual union. So that's what I've just been talking about for the last few minutes. It really is spiritual union. And so marriage among Christians is to be marriage between Christians, people who, who already have his spirit living within them. Um, second, God views marriage uh, with, with the intent that it will also be a very intimate relationship. When we read about ancient marriage, most of the time, women were treated like property, and therefore, they were traded for political and financial favors. And sometimes, when, when, when those uh, arrangements were t- intended to be lifelong, we called, we called trading women for power and money marriage. And if it was only done for the short term or for pleasure, we called it prostitution the, the, the earliest examples, not the earliest, but the, most of the early Old Testament examples of marriage were not holy. They weren't, they weren't prescriptive. Here's how you ought to do it. They were descriptive. Here's what happens when you do this. And, and, and marriages that uh, were really about power brokering and money brokering, they, they didn't feature intimacy in the place of marital love, there was basically breeding so that we could get children to work in the fields and to better our position uh, financially and perhaps uh, militarily. The will of God was that marriage would not be just a social arrangement between people who had power over other people, but would be the coming to the willful coming together of two people into a spiritual union that would also produce an intimacy uh, and, and that, that, is, that is of which, um, for which, sexuality is only one tool. The desire of God is that two people would actually be bonded together, so much so that it's hard to tell where one of them ends and the other one begins. That passage from Genesis 2, repeated again and again and again, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one, clinging, because I don't want her to get away. And eventually we melt into one another. We, we, we form a very real bond. And because God intended for marriage to be intimate, you and I then have a responsibility to coach the intimacy. And we can can certainly do that through sexuality. We talked about that a little bit on Wednesday nights, but but well beyond that, um, really the foundation on which any kind of physical intimacy can be built is a real soulish kind of intimacy that has a foundation of behavior under it. And the behavior is that I will always treat my spouse with dignity and with love. Let me, let me help you with those two words, dignity. It means that I will recognize the inherent value of this person because she is created in the image of God. And even on the days where I don't like the noises that she's making at me or the decisions that, you know what I'm saying? that I still recognize here's a person who bears the image of God and therefore I look past my personal preferences and I see a person who resembles God in this world and therefore I treat her with a dignity that's fitting of God himself. 
dignity. We treat them with dignity and with love. Love is this. I've, I've, uh, hopefully, I've taught you this uh, definition. If you can kind of stumble through it, say it with me. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense, by the help of the Holy Spirit. I treat this person because I recognize that she is like God. She was created in his image. On her worst days, still like God. Because of that, I will show honor and respect. And when it comes down to choosing between me getting my way or Laura getting hers, I opt for second place. And I demonstrate a preference for her well-being by doing whatever it is that Laura needs and many times what Laura wants. Now listen, when you pledge yourselves to that early on, when you pledge that to one another, sometimes it turns into a fight to see who's going to outserve the other that day. There's, there's a race to see who will die to their own selfishness first because I'm going to keep this commitment to her. The, the business of treating someone with dignity, your spouse with dignity, and then demonstrating a preference for their well-being builds intimacy between a husband and wife. Where a sexual relationship goes with that can be pretty awesome. Uh, third thing, we, God views marriage as a spiritual union. It was his design that it would be intimate. It was uh, also the case, God understands this very well, that marriages are vulnerable to decline. If the story of the relationship between God and Israel is any indication of what can happen in a marriage, a, re, a covenant relationship, despite all the best and well-intended promises, is vulnerable to decline. And that being the case, we can't afford to spend a single day taking it for granted or neglecting the upkeep. My dear daughter is at Northwest Nazarene University. I, I love that. I also wish she was, you know, like here where I could see her each day and worship with her, and we haven't figured out how to do that yet. So she's five hours away. And I call her and say things like, I know there was an alarm on your phone that just went off that said, check the oil because I put it on my phone too. Did you check the oil? <laughs> if there's any pause, I know the answer, right? I know the real answer. Did you check the oil? Because if you want that car to continue to go, she named her car Zeke. Actually, uh, her dear friend Krista named Faith's car Zeke. Um, yeah. uh, Zeke apparently needs oil, and water, and somebody to check on him from time to time, make sure all his pieces, parts are moving in the right direction. And if she continues to do the stuff of maintenance, she and Zeke will enjoy a long relationship. Hopefully long enough that she's, you know, old enough to buy her own car. That'd be great. The same is true. Our, our, our relationship with God is vulnerable to decline. If you, uh, you, you know plenty of people who used to be followers of Jesus, don't you? You know, plenty of people who, who say, I love him, but you haven't seen, they haven't seen the inside of a worship service for a long, long time because the relationship can erode. So can your marriage if you don't do the stuff of maintaining it regularly. Um, and I'm just going to tell you the daily attention thing, it looks like this. Put the stinking phone down and you can check the scores on the television later and look one another in the eye and take 10 minutes to just say, would you please tell me about your day and let them unload all of the hard stuff and all of the good stuff, and you never know. They might give you a chance to talk about yours too. 
But even if you never get around to it, you've demonstrated preference for the well-being of this other person. You've treated him or her with dignity, and that is the stuff of daily maintenance. It's not real hard. I mean, I could tell you to go on marriage retreats and to conferences and read books, and a bunch of you are never going to read another book in your life. I, I can tell you, spend the money, and when the time comes, you won't have the, the money set aside for the whatever, 100, 200, whatever dollars for a weekend to remember at the Coeur d'Alene Resort, and so you won't go. But you don't have to do all of those hard and expensive and time-consuming things when you already have 24 hours in your day, and some of them you're going to spend with your spouse, and, and you can carve out these, these little 10-minute marriages here and there that do end up piling up over the years, and amounting to health. Last thing, and we're done. God sees marriage as a spiritual union. He, he, it is his desire that it will become intimate. He knows that it is vulnerable to, to decline, so it must not be neglected but given daily attention. And he also has a goal for your marriage. And the goal is that you would produce godly offspring. To the folks who have not been able to have children, I understand this may be painful. To hear this overarching will of God that didn't come true in your life. Can we again, for just a moment, say that the exception doesn't negate the rule? The intention of God is not that your marriage would produce people who are neutral and decide for themselves about whether they will follow Jesus. God intends intended in the past and still intends today that those who are his followers will actively disciple and form their children to be disciples who form their children. Some of you are, are, are having a really profound inward amen right now, and it's good to let that out, okay? I mean, it is the intent of God Listen, I was a youth pastor. If I had a nickel for every time a parent said to me, We're, you know, you can't force kids... No, but you can train them. You can't force kids. No, but you can lead them. You can't make kids, well, you can make kids do some things that a bunch of people aren't willing to do. You not only can disciple your children, you're obligated as a member of the covenant community, obligated to God, and, hear me, obligated to the rest of us. Remember how this passage began? Well, Cliff's preaching now. Uh, are we not children of the same Father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other by violating the covenant of our ancestors? You see, we prove unfaithful to one another. When, when some of us refuse to disciple our children to become intentional followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, your kids won't have any problem throwing away the faith if they decide to. You can massage it into all the broken, cracked places in their lives, and as adults, they'll be completely capable of making up their minds for themselves and shucking this faith. You don't have to um, subject them to that before they understand the consequences of it while they're still children and teens. Every parent that ever said to me, um, we're letting the kids decide for themselves, I looked them in the eye and said, I think that's a giant mistake. Form your kids for Christ. And as far as, there's the marriage side of this, but that's supposed to be an image of what Christ was hoping would happen between, um, between him and the church. It is supposed to be the case that the marriage between God and his church produces godly offspring, new births, new people, 
drawn into the faith and discipled and raised to be people who make disciples of others. We have some good things happening in our church. I'm, I love being a part of, of First Nez. It's time for us to find some more people who do not yet know him. It's time for more spiritual children, more spiritual new births around here. It's what happens when a marriage that is um, intimate does what intimacy brings about. We know how you got those children, by the way. You got really close to each other. When the people of God are faithful to the covenant, to him and to one another, it, it produces new births. How about as we close today, you just ask God to, to show you one of those four things where you and he, or maybe you and your spouse, need to have a conversation about being spiritually united, about being intimate, about guarding against your vulnerability to decline, or what about those godly offspring? Stand with me if you would. Lord, always amazes me how this hour slips away. And when I preach as I did today, I'm always a little bit concerned that there was too much cliff and maybe not enough of you. So I pray you'd give all my friends filters so they can filter out all the stuff that's thus saith the cliff and just hang on to thus saith the Lord. Lord, I find some things in here that they're hard to accept and they indicate certain things about me and my family and my friends, but they also chart a path forward in covenant faithfulness that is your holy desire and will for us. So I ask in the holy name of Jesus as we pause for just one moment more before you, is there one of these things you'd like to speak to us about today? Each of us listens for your voice. Well, you usually don't stutter. You usually don't wait long when you've got people who are really willing to listen. So trust in that those who wanted to listen have heard. We will now walk in obedience by the help of your Spirit.